Hello everyone, my name is Dolika Gottlieb and I would like to welcome you to European Health Union Now, a podcast series produced by the European Health Forum Gastein for the European Health Union Initiative. Hello and welcome to the seventh edition of the European Health Union Now podcast series. Today, I'm delighted to have a conversation with Christine Sorensen, founder of the Global Health Literacy Academy, president of the International Health Literacy Association, and a European Health Union Initiative champion. A warm welcome to you, Christine, and thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much. Uh, Christine, the, the field of health literacy has seen increased attention over the past decade, with the number of networks and institutions working in this area growing. Yet, a significant number of the European population reports below optimal levels of health literacy, with large discrepancies between countries. So what do we know about the value of health literacy and how can we achieve higher degrees of health literacy in the population? I'm really looking forward to speaking to you about this, Christine, and to hear more from you. Thank you so much. And uh, yeah, why is health literacy on the agenda, you may ask, and why is it important? Health literacy is the knowledge and motivation and competencies we need to find and understand and judge and use information to take decisions in everyday life, whether it's when we are ill or trying to prevent uh, risk factors or trying to stay healthy. Um, and we have realized through research that unfortunately, not everyone has the capacity to take decisions on their own behalf. That's one thing. And the other thing is that sometimes they don't have the best conditions for doing so. And that gets us to systems and services and how we provide, you know, population health. Uh, thank you for giving us this, this introduction to what uh, health literacy actually is. Uh, there was a, a health literacy population survey carried out in, in 2019 and with the aim to measure population health literacy in as many of the member states of the WHO European region as possible. Could you maybe talk us briefly through the results of the survey? Yes, so the recent survey, which was launched at end of 2021, uh, was conducted in 17 countries in the larger European uh, region, the WHO region, um, and it actually followed the first European health literacy uh, survey, which was conducted in 2011 with support of the European uh, Commission. So that's 10 years ago. And unfortunately, uh, we saw that the trends from 10 years ago, they are still reflected in the new survey, which is that uh, unfortunately, elderly people or those with uh, migrant backgrounds, they have... Uh, more difficulties in managing health and finding the right information um, or timely information and also people with lower uh, socioeconomic status so those that have lower education um, may uh, be uh, unemployed and so forth and these are trends we see in many different areas of public health, but they are also here when we look at uh, health literacy. Thank you, Christine. Uh, I remember that uh, health literacy was on the agenda of the age of G already very early on, and you mentioned that first survey. That must have been at around the same time, right? 
Yeah, so there's no uh, doubt that European Health Forum Gastein was a turning point for the health literacy agenda in, in Europe. Um, 15, 20 years ago, there were some key stakeholders in Europe that had actually uh, been talking about health literacy, uh, like uh, Ilona Kikbush and Professor Donald Beam and others. Um, however, with that first survey supported by the European um, Commission, it was possible to actually map the status of health literacy, and it created a stir politically, because we think we have good healthcare systems in Europe, we think we have good uh, educational systems in Europe and, and really good welfare societies in most countries in the European Union. And yet this survey showed that we are leaving people behind who are not able to catch up. And uh, we saw um, a, a ripple effect from that first survey and now also the second one, into political systems, which shows that you know they are decision makers are open to look to the evidence and take appropriate action. So very important to to have this data, of course. And uh, but having the data is one thing. Uh, what do we do about it? How can we overcome these barriers? So we have seen that awareness matters a lot. And as I said, the first survey really created um, a, a lot of discussion on why would it be that we in the European Union have these differences uh, in countries and between countries, across countries. Uh, and it uh, turns out that health literacy is very contextual and content uh, related. So we might be very good in our general well-being, but if we get a disease like diabetes or cancer or any other thing, then we are starting from scratch and we'll have to learn uh, from the start. And we were all in that boat when uh, COVID-19 came uh, a couple of years ago and we have to start all over. And uh, what is this disease? You know, understand it. Yes, is it relevant for me? Should I take a vaccine and so forth? Um, so, so we have seen that uh, it's relevant for communicable diseases, for staying healthy in general, so also in terms of self-care and especially for healthcare as well. And have your findings shown also that we may have to tailor offers according to regions or national health systems? We have seen that uh, one size does not fit all, that's uh, for sure. And uh, we also know that we have different healthcare systems in across European countries. So therefore also the, the systems and services are um, created in different ways with put a, a different kind of demands on the users, but also on the providers. And we hear again and again that, for example, there is too little time in health consultations to really explain uh, what for the patient, what is that, you know, what's wrong, what's the illness, and but also for the, for example, general practitioners to, to have the time enough to listen carefully what's, what's going on. So it becomes really very automatic, even though they want to do the best on both sides, then the time pressure and mm -hmm. system stress, what is called by some people system stress, matters to, to the way we communicate and the way we are able to show empathy and the way we are able to listen uh, at both sides. So sometimes you would have patients who do not have the time enough to really un fully understand what the health provider is saying and on the other hand it's the health provider would not always have time enough uh, or 
competencies to to really explain in a way where the patient would would get the most out of the situation. Do you see a difference in the consultations between countries? Do you know anything about that? We see that uh, in some countries, uh, bureaucracy is less than in others, and that mm -hmm. matters. We also see some differences in the way that some systems have digitalized their services. Uh, we know Estonia, the Nordic countries, Scandinavian countries, Denmark, Norway, Sweden, they have a high degree of digital services, which on one hand makes uh, access to services very easy for those who know. Uh, but for those who can't, we see that digital literacy matters, whether they, first of all, have the devices and, or access to devices where they can um, uh, access their health data or get to an a, a appointment. Um, so, so again, every country has its own kind of challenges, and that's why it's so important when we do our health literacy surveys, that each country has its own profile, and it's not so easy to compare across the countries because it's a bit like uh, comparing apple and pears and, and oranges. But uh, we have to dive into the data and explain the data with the type of systems that each country has and maybe each region. And solutions can then be developed based on data so that it's targeted certain uh, challenges because some countries have some challenges with elderly, whereas others may not have that, but have other things. <clears throat> And that's where the data can help us. Thank you, Christine. So generally, digital health literacy will be a topic that stays with us, I, I assume. I, be, I believe so. And it's here and uh, we see many systems that have already you know, used it. We also see some setbacks um, when, when it's working. It might be great, but when it's not, it's giving a lot of uh, bottlenecks. And um, also we, we, we see that again, the trends from health literacy is also very apparent with digital literacy. So they may not know um, uh, how to use computers, they may not have a computer. So I see mHealth is a big part of it. So mobile health and smartphones and so on. But we rely then very much on the smartphones, which again, give access um, to, to, to data. Mm -hmm. Yes. <laughs> yeah, uh, and we've seen during COVID that we are able to use mHealth, right? Definitely. And we saw how quickly apps were developed to support people in choices and keeping distances and being alert of um, whether um, they were near someone else who had the, the disease and so on. But I was also amazed how the quality was not always as good as, for example, in the private uh, sector. So I think we are often very, very often lacking behind the design of the services probably due to lack of resources. And we know that the health area is not always, you know, the well-funded area and that shows. So when we are used to using high quality apps in other uh, areas of our life, like banking, home banking, or traveling, or where well, we are very, very used now to, to using digital services, but health kind of not, is lacking behind in itself. Uh, with the quality of services. And I hope that will change in the future. So do you think new partnerships with industry are needed when it comes to that? 
I think we uh, we need all hands on board, uh, industry as well as government, as well as uh, the civic society and NGOs, patient organizations. We need uh, everyone uh, to to create health uh, for people and for societies because we know there is a trade-off. You know, individual decisions, although health literacy is closely connected to informed decisions and shared decision making. Um, those choices may not always correspond with public health interest. And I think that is always an ethical dilemma paradox we need to, to bear in mind, and we may have different hats on, but how can we build towards the best break even that takes individual concerns into account and respect them, as well as taking into concern the, the public health matters? That's where we should aim for. Um. Health literacy has become a bit of a buzzword lately, and that's not least due to experts like you who have been working so uh, diligently on this topic and have kept it on the on the agendas. Uh, can you tell us a bit more about health literacy initiatives that are currently underway in Europe? So we have previously seen diabetes uh, health literacy as a European supported project and also projects on, on digital health literacy, which makes a lot of sense. Um, and I think more of those diseases on um, uh, for communicable diseases or self-management self has been a, a big issue and also self-care. What we really want to is that people can help themselves and uh, doing a lot of interviews we hear again and again people don't want to be a burden they don't want to be a burden to their families or to their local community or to society they want to to care for themselves and the people they love and and they want to go to work and their own money but we just know especially from data from outside europe for example uh united states that this is big business Lack of health literacy is big business. So, for example, one big healthcare provider in in the U.S. said that they could avoid one million hospital visits if people were more health literate uh, or the services were more uh, responsive to to lack of health literacy. One million. Imagine how much Crazy. that that is, uh, and they could say one billion dollars if they could make a better match. So it's all about making that better match. So how, how can we convince policymakers to take that more into account? I think when I speak to decision makers, they are very open to take action because it's uh, it makes a lot of sense, you know. And many people have been in their in situations on their own where they could see that there was a lack of match with that they didn't get the help when they needed uh, in a way they needed it. And you can find lots of stories uh, on social media where there are patient for us, where these stories are, um, are shared uh, and told. So there is a big challenge and a big task for decision makers to make sure that empathy is there and that we are trying to find the best possible solutions when when it's needed and not putting off uh, due to to budget but uh, and we know from from covid-19 there were suddenly money <laughs> transferred to the health area so i hope some of those resources will stay because i think we can do so much more than what we did uh, before the, um, the pandemic, just by educating healthcare providers so that they pay attention to, um, 
to uh, health literacy and become better in responding to the needs. I think that's where we should start educating healthcare providers. So we, we see similar problems as with other health related issues that uh, they're often dependent on budgetary issues and election cycles in the end, right? Yeah, but I don't want to just boil it down to, to, um, to lack of funding. I think there is a lot to do. And, and we are, of course, building off uh, many years of investment in health promotion and in disease prevention, in health communication. We have known for a very long time that these areas matter. So we want to shift the focus from investing in healthcare only to also really enlarging the the investment in, in uh, disease prevention and, and health promotion where we want to keep healthy people healthy in the first place. And that's where the mind shift is needed. That's not funding. It's, it's really about knowledge. And also because that requires another toolbox than we see in medical professions. Medical professions are trained to treat illnesses. They, that's their focus. It's fix and repair, um, which is great because we want to keep people to help people when they're ill. But disease prevention and health promotion, that's another group of people That's social workers, school teachers, uh, journalists uh, speaking about health in media. Um, so the group of, of uh, professionals involved in prevention and health promotion it's much larger and they're not dressed in uniforms and they're out there. So it makes it much more complex for decision makers to delegate resources and to, to train them. But we want people who are involved in all aspects of health to realize that health literacy matters. Not only when I say health professionals, I don't only speak about people like nurses and, and medical staff, but also all the other ones supporting mm -hmm. people's health and well-being. Yeah, th thanks for, for pointing to that, uh, Christine. Uh, there's been quite a lot of talk about uh, European health literacy strategy. Uh, how likely do you think it is to, to be realized? And, and what do you think absolutely needs to be included in that? I do hope we will have a European health literacy strategy either um, initiated by the European uh, Union uh, and all the countries in joint efforts or by the European Commission or by the World Health Organization's European region. And the reason I would like an overall overarching strategy is that I see there's a um, ripple effect. So if we have a strategy, it helps to in introduce health literacy into many other uh, areas. So for example, recently I reviewed national cancer control plans and I saw that five countries already included health literacy as part of their uh, cancer control um, interventions at national level. And those countries were also those that already had national health literacy plans. So I believe there is a need to develop such a strategy to encourage countries to create that awareness and the necessary education and competence building, uh, a capacity building to uh, make sure that we actually implement health literacy responsiveness across all areas of health. And that takes a strategy because that is a strategic choice. It doesn't happen by itself. You know, it, it has to be a deliberate decision. And the reason why we should do it is that there is a business case for it. There's a political case to do it. We want to increase people's quality of lives. 
We want to make sure they can handle much more on their own to the way they want to create and have their lives and live their lives, but also in a yeah uh, in a balance with what countries uh, public priorities are, and therefore I see it as an overarching um, collective effort to create a European health literacy strategy. So do you think COVID-19 has been a bit of a catapult there, or uh, do we have this, this window of opportunity that we often talk about? Yes, I think definitely there is a, a window of opportunity. On one hand, we saw that people needed to learn really quickly, but they also did. They did change behavior. Supermarkets did put red stripes you know, on the floor and to keep distances, and we, we started to adapt. Uh, behavioral change that we wouldn't know about just three years uh, ago. So again, I think most people, we see that in our data also, most people, they know uh, what to do, but we have a smaller group that, that doesn't, and those are the ones we want to help. And that's where we also saw that um, governments and health systems were not prepared for such a large scale um, change. So in the beginning, their communication material was not, uh, good enough. It was not translated into different languages. Uh, pictograms were not sharp, you know, uh, to really match the the needs. And and there we have so much to learn from the COVID nineteen case, which will then escalate uh, the efforts on health literacy. So one one challenge we faced during COVID and uh, and we're still facing now, of course, is uh, the the aspect of misinformation and disinformation in the internet, and uh, what that requires again is digital health literacy. How how can we work on that that uh, uh, people know which sites are reliable and which are not? Yeah. I think that is a major challenge we have ahead of us, and it becomes even more complicated when um, when policymakers also need some health literacy. You know, at some point we were even speaking about health literacy because there were messages from high-profiled people involved in policy that would put out messages that were not in accordance with recommendations. So. It's, it's a general topic that we need to, to match, but also not only related to COVID-19. You see it with cancer, where um, there are so many alternative ways of uh, addressing cancer needs. And some people are really putting a lot of money into um, maybe future scenarios that are not really helpful for them. And but there are so many that want to take advantage of, of people in vulnerable situations, unfortunately. So we have to think it broader than, than COVID-19 and, um, and vaccination and, uh, and so on, but uh, it's there. And we have seen a whole new area in photomiology Mm -hmm. growing out of, of the COVID-19, which is really responding to that need. And it was there uh, when we had HIV, uh, but then when um, SARS and, Mars, uh, and MERS but, uh, diseases and other uh, yeah, communicable diseases. But now we see it becoming professionalized. We see research and funding going into it, and it will be the new buzzword coming up, uh, but also because it's needed to address mis and disinformation. So it's all about being able to judge if information is reliable, uh, trustworthy, timely, and relevant, uh, and then that people can take the appropriate actions. Mm -hmm. um, 
when when we look at at, at the future what what and if you had to pinpoint three major challenges that you think would need to be prioritized what would they be yeah one is the capacity building of all involved in health with the, everyone in all areas like emotional health social health mental health not only physical health but also digital health like, uh, financial health and so on so we i i that would be one challenge we need to think of health and well-being in much broader Mm -hmm. uh, perspective than what we do now for our services. Um, the other one would to be to start early. And one of the main recommendations we always say is to start health, developing health literacy in schools. But as far as I know, it's only Finland that has, uh, in Europe, that has health and well-being as a standalone subject. And whenever we discuss with decision makers, you know, it's such a big challenge for them because it changing that would mean they would have to address a new school reform they would have to change the way teachers are, uh, are taught uh, and their curriculum um, and we want to have a whole new you know, profile in a uh, new discipline that can can help us bridge this so that's it's a it's a long-term goal but i think it's also needed and i do hope that in the future we will have that address so that there is a standalone health and well-being subject like biology like math like you know languages because i think that will will help us and lastly we need uh, decision makers that are brave enough <laughs> to actually take those steps that are needed and who are um, also showing, as I said, the empathy and not just boiling health down to an economic matter, but very much a human matter. And I miss that again and again. Um, coming from Denmark, currently there's a huge debate about our mental health strategies and the lack of investment in psychiatry and helping those in our societies that are worse off and who have conditions that are not visible to others. And uh, I think this is a very similar situation in many other European um, countries. So how can we make sure that decision makers dare and are brave enough to address these crucial issues that um, are not very pretty? And it's not a you know bridge on a motorway. It's not something very concrete. These mm -hmm. are investments that have long-term impact. And I hope we will you know, we'll see many more brave decision makers. They are there and we see them, but I want them to be more united and much stronger. And COVID-19 was maybe that window of opportunity where they could see the investment mattered and how quickly also that uh, companies, government and so on, they could work together to actually find a solution, which was vaccines. Uh, so what uh, some of the challenges you're pointing to are actually challenges uh, health promotion and, and prevention have faced over the years, right? We, they cannot show results as quickly as, as some medical services can, for example. Yeah, and that, that's one thing. It's a long-term investment. And I do believe that all the investments we did, you know, in the 70s and the 80s when health promotion came on the agenda, it's there, but it's much more um, indirect than direct. Um, and we need, uh, as I said, the, the broader discipline, sociologists, uh, public health experts, and so on, to also speak up and show that it's more than... Um, um, 
uh, random control trials that matters because when we're talking about societal change, we need other types of research, um, observations, studies, uh, interviews, qualitative um, yeah, studies that will give us those insights where we can actually um, make an, an impact in people's lives. And we saw it happening with COVID-19. People were, if they understood the urgency, people are willing to adapt. So I'm not so afraid of trying to convince populations. I'm much more concerned about our decision makers and civil servants that are all keen to help. We have the knowledge available, but we need to fine-tune it with the health literacy lens and make sure that we get the, those on board that have the difficulties in understanding what's, what's going on and why they should do it. Christine, you're so passionate about the topic and uh, you've, when health literacy is mentioned, your name inevitably comes up. What got you into the field, if I may ask? Yeah, it was interesting. Uh, I was working at Maastricht University um, as a researcher and um, our uh, professor Helmut Brandt uh, started in the department and he had um, the first European House Literacy Survey uh, with funding and we, we started up with eight countries and the colleagues there was were such a motivation and he was in motivation to to go into this endeavor. None of us really knew what health literacy was. There were no data for Europe. And that challenge really got into me. And especially when we saw the results, when we realized that uh, it was a public health challenge that we could not neglect anymore. And I have a background in, in medicine and public health and uh, global health diplomacy and so on. So I found for me and in, in my professional profile, it tied it all together um, and from my um, civil work, let's say I was very much engaged in the world organization of uh, Girl Guides and Girl Scouts and developed in, involved in, in United Nations youth policy and health policies and so on. So I, I knew from an early start that we could actually influence policy and do some advocacy in this field. So it made a lot of sense to me that uh, even though it's a long-term mm -hmm. game, uh, I believe it's the right thing to do, and I believe we are able to, with the knowledge we have, to change people's lives to the better if they are more equipped to take decisions. And then I was inspired by Martin Nussbaum, a philosopher from US who worked with Amartya Sen in India, and she said it's not only to blame people for not having the competencies, it's very much about how systems are designed. And that, I guess, is another pillar of mine to, to look where can we integrate health literacy as an organizational asset that will actually improve the quality of work that we do and how can we integrate health literacy as a quality indicator. I think that will, that will matter and that will make a change. Okay, thank you so much, Christine. And uh, just to wrap up for today, if you could implement one solution to improve health literacy today, what would it, would it be for you? It's what I'm trying to do in my daily life in the Global Health Literacy Academy and the International Health Literacy Association to work with 
organizations and institutions and companies uh, to integrate health literacy as a, as an asset, as a business value, as an organizational value for them, because they can see immediately if they improve uh, their um, information, if they improve their products, the way they are designed to make more user friendly, if they uh, improve yeah, improve the services and if they improve their organizational culture and eventually then they will also help improve behavioral change towards creating better lives and that makes a lot of sense to them uh, and it can be done by fine-tuning the way they work now it's not rocket science we're looking at but it's those daily routines and the way we view people as uh, human beings and fellow beings and I think they realize that uh, along with, you know, improving the health of the planet, we also still want to improve health of people. So for, for many institutions, it makes a lot of sense. So I'm very hopeful in that sense for the future. And I love what I'm doing. And I'm happy to meet so many great people who are inspired by the work I help to do, but also I'm inspired by what they are, they are doing. So these collective efforts, that's my fuel. <laughs> No, my everyday view. <laughs> Thanks so much. You're wrapping this up beautifully, Christine. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. And a big thank you also to our listeners for tuning in to our conversation. <laughs>